Would you join me in praying again for the Lord's help as we open the Word of God together? Our God and Father, it is by faith that we receive the promises that you have given to us. They are promises that find their yes and their mighty amen in Jesus Christ alone. These promises that were determined before the foundation of the world, many of them already fulfilled in the first coming of Christ and the rest to be fulfilled at his second appearing These promises are the anchor for our souls. There are so many competing ideas, so many competing interests, so many cares and even anxieties that fill our hearts on this day that the promises are often moved to the margins of our minds and hearts, if not expelled altogether. But we pray that the reverse would be true, that the power of these living promises, these unchangeable, unshakable promises would have such dominion and power in our hearts today that by their presence they would expel every anxious thought, every fearful worry, that they would expel every false notion of you, the living God, of the one true Savior, Jesus Christ, and of the dear Holy Spirit. We ask that your word would take root in our hearts and that it would bear the fruit of faith, of repentance, of love, and holiness. O Lord God, plant the seed of this eternal truth deep into the soil of our hearts. And as we pray that, would you please prepare our hearts to receive it? Cause our hearts to be receptive, to be tender, to be eager so that as the word is imparted by the Spirit uh, in the course of our time together, that it would have transformative power in us. Oh, please change us. Please don't leave us as we are, but grow us even some days incrementally, step by step, until we are perfect in every way, until we are the perfect reflection of all that Christ is. Thank you for the promise that you are forming Christ in us and conforming us to his image. Thank you for the promise that the good work that you have started is a work that you will be faithful to complete. Thank you for the promise that all that you have given to the Son, he keeps. He does not lose one of them. Thank you for the promise of security and eternal life. Now would you come, Holy Spirit, You are the precious comforter, the one that Jesus said, it it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the comforter will not come. And as you have come and taken up residence within us, you have come also to instruct us in truth. So illuminate our hearts and minds once again and lead us to the Savior who changes eternally. Would you meet the personal needs that we have carried into this room today? Some grieve and sorrow the recent loss of loved ones. Some are struggling to understand the hard circumstances that they are living through at the moment. Some struggling with why you have not yet answered a prayer that they believe you have formed in their souls. And they are struggling even at this moment wondering whether you actually hear them. 
Oh, Lord God, let them receive that encouragement and consolation that you always hear the cries of your people. You always answer our prayers out of your wisdom, out of your love, for the sake of Christ. Give them patience to wait while the the answers to their requests are being formed and accomplished. For those who are physically ill on this day, we ask, great God, that you would strengthen and heal some of, of temporary illness, that they have every hope of recovering fully. Others are carrying diseases and um, conditions in their bodies where they are not sure, and it is difficult uh, to see and understand what you are doing when the future seems so uncertain. Others, Lord, sorrow the, the, a, a child who is away from you or a spouse who is seemingly hardened against your truth. And we ask that you would bring comfort and peace to those hearts to rest in you, to know that you love that loved one more than they do. And so we ask, great God, that from uh, one side of this assembly to the other, from young to old, uh, from new believer to mature saint, that you would meet us where we are and that you would bless us for your namesake on this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have come now to Romans 15, and I would ask that you open your Bibles to this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church that was gathering at this time in the city of Rome, a powerful place, a place, as we looked at many months ago, that was controlled and dominated by a godless ruler, a culture that really was not seeking to promote Christianity or faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, The wealth, uh, the politics, the culture of that day was a very difficult culture to live in, but God had his people there. We've come through chapter 14 and through the first seven verses of Romans 15, been looking at a very narrow focus in one sense where Paul is exhorting people who have very different opinions about what the Christian life should look like to welcome one another. That is to open their hearts and receive one another for Christ's sake. And what Paul has been doing is to remind them of the great cost of their salvation. So the cross has been central. And Paul has reminded multiple times, if Jesus loved you in this particular way, you ought to love one another. He's also touched on the power of resurrection, that we have hope of eternal life. And because Christ came out of a tomb, we not only have hope of eternal life, but we actually have been raised out of the dead, spiritually speaking, into a new life. And we ought to be living that new life, evidencing the power of the resurrection one toward another. And that ultimately, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, have translated into something powerful, and that is the formation of a people. And so those three stones that have a little bit of artwork on them tell that particular story. The cross, the empty tomb, and then the third one on the right there, the fish, is the symbol of the church or followers of Jesus. And it's been that way since the first century. And I thought that is a helpful visual aid in many ways to put the three key pieces of truth and reality in front of us again as we as we kind of wrap up that section of Romans 14 and now move into something even, uh, I think, more significant. 
It's easy to think in terms of, well, if we can just get this little, you know, person-to-person love relationship thing worked out, we're fine. But there's something actually so much more significant than just obeying a command of Christ and learning to love one another for all the differences that we have, the strong opinions that we carry. That is in view, there's no doubt. But there's actually something even beyond that that our church family, as a local expression of this, needs to anticipate to expect, and I want to talk for just a moment, what should we expect? If we love one another in the way that Romans 14 and into chapter 15 has been set before us, what should we expect? You know, it's, it's a moment in history where many of us would say, well, I don't know what to expect. And if we've learned anything in recent years, it's that you should expect the unexpected. Now, that's an old adage. Uh, and that's true. Um, one of the most intriguing Uh, articles that I read in this past week was a result of a little uh, search that I did. Uh, What should should we expect? Just Google that for fun. There are all kinds of fascinating things that will come up. Some of them you can, you know, see in about four or five words. Not going there. Uh, That's too scary. But there was one article that I found uh, at a website called Science Focus. And uh, Future Technology was the title of the article, 22 Ideas About to Change Our World. And it had all kinds of marvels in it. There are some fascinating, if not alarming, advances in artificial intelligence, even mind-reading technologies. Like, oh man, this is like old science fiction stuff that's just, it's it's here. Uh, But there are also some quite remarkable things, technologies that are being developed, like 3D printing of of artificial bones for grafting and reconstructive surgery. Or how about this one? Fabrics, fabrics like your shirt, your pants, fabric that clothing is made of that actually has technology woven into it where it can detect things like heartbeats and hand claps and and gather that information and communicate it to other technologies. I think to myself, What should we really expect if this is where we are? Hydrogen-fueled aircraft and artificial corneas and irises. I was talking to Jessica about that before the service and said, had you heard this? And she's like, I hadn't actually heard about artificial irises. I mean, just marvels, wonders of technology that are being developed. What should we expect? Sometimes it's difficult to know what to expect. And though we're living in a moment in history where there are fearful expectations and hopeful expectations, in this passage before us, though, there is something embedded that ought to set our expectations. And the word that we're going to see as we read through this in just a moment that occurs a couple of different times is hope. Biblical hope, as we've seen so often, is a confident expectation for good. And when God calls you to hope in his promises, uh, as Christ himself was living by faith in the promises of God and doing things to display that they're absolutely trustworthy, God wants to carry us beyond those unknowns which typically we would use to describe our hopes or expectations and actually secure us and plant our souls in something that is so firm, so unchangeable, so non-negotiable that we would say to the world that is fearful and doesn't know what to expect, we know 
And it's not because we came up with it on our own. Some would say, well, that's fairly arrogant. And I would say, oh, please understand. This, this is not stuff that we came up with on our own. This is, this is God's word. These are God's promises. So the Bible is giving us a different set of expectations, if you will, but they're expectations created by God himself as he makes promises, expectations that are sustained by God himself as he faithfully fulfills those very promises. So what should we expect? We should expect God to be faithful. We should expect God to do what he promised. Now, if your Bibles are open to Romans 15, find verse seven, that depending on how your, your text is set up and printed, that may be the last verse of one paragraph, but in moving into verse eight as mine uh, is printed, a new paragraph, but they really go together, and I just I wanna read verse seven to, to tie that in uh, to this next little portion. So here's the command. Uh, again, tied back to what Christ has done on the cross specifically and to Paul's exhortation that we be a people who with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We go back to verse 8. And I want you to see something very powerful for us because this is what builds our expectations. This is that little phrase, a mission to serve people unlike himself. That, that I assigned to Jesus. I just didn't have room. But Christ is really the subject of that thought. Jesus is the one who's set before us here in verse eight as a savior, a rescuer who's on a mission to serve people unlike himself. You say, where do you get that? Well, look, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. And it is interesting that the terminology that's used here, we translate in other passages of the New Testament as a deacon. You know, deacons are not just simply um, created by our Lord and assigned to churches like ours to help serve and take care of needs. We had deacons who help prepare the Lord's table that we'll enjoy. We have deacons who oversee facilities maintenance and, and deacons who, who serve us as a church family when we have extraordinary financial needs or health needs or all kinds of ways that deacons serve. But they are designed by Jesus to be a visible demonstration of his servanthood. He's the ultimate servant. And he has served you and me. Now what Paul has in view here, chiefly, principally, is the service that he gave to the circumcised, which is an interesting way to just describe the Jews. 
Circumcision was something that God ordained long ago. It was a covenantal sign uh, that, that Jewish males participated in. And so that term came to have very specific reference to the Jewish people themselves. Now here's what I want you to think about. That is that Jesus was not always a Jew in eternity. Now that may seem like, well no kidding. But no, ponder that, because sometimes we don't think along the lines in, in simplest terms that we need to. What it meant that as God from eternity past, the eternal God, the infinite God, the all-wise God, he didn't have an ethnic assignment. But as God, he entered the world, this is the miracle of the incarnation, entered the world not just like making an appearance, but actually entered through the process of conception and gestation. We've had a number of babies born here in recent years. Some of you are anticipating the birth of another child in, in the next several months, and you gotta wait. The God of the universe entered the womb of Mary. And as one author has written, the Son of God, who is not a Jew, left his complete freedom in heaven, and I would add his perfect glory, and became a good little Jewish boy and then a good law-keeping Jewish man. The whole time he perfectly obeyed the very laws that he himself had given at Mount Sinai 1,500 years before, even obeying laws that he knew were temporary because he designed them to be temporary. And, and examples of that from Old Testament uh, Old Testament law would be you know, things like don't eat pork, worship only in Jerusalem, bring a sacrifice when you worship. And the only laws he pushed back against were those that the Pharisees and others had added or completely misunderstood. He, he was fully committed to life as a Jewish man. The author goes on to write, Jesus in his life practiced what he later preached through Paul, right here in this passage, Romans 14 and 15. He became a servant to a people who were different from him. He submitted himself to a culture that was foreign to him. He welcomed Jewish culture. He fit into Jewish culture. He wasn't some counterculture hippie who railed against everything traditional. He wasn't a weird outsider or misanthrope. Do you know what a misanthrope is? I, I had this vague notion, but I went ahead and looked it up because I'm like, I don't use the word misanthrope every day in my conversation. You probably don't either. A misanthrope is just a person who dislikes humanity and avoids being around other people. Jesus wasn't a misanthrope. He went to synagogue with his parents, went to temple in Jerusalem when he was 12. He regularly celebrated Passover and other feasts in Jerusalem. He rested on the Sabbath and attended synagogue service. He became a servant to the Jews and their culture. It's easy to read right through that verse, that little phrase, and think, let's get to the good stuff. Well, of course, of course we affirm that Jesus became a servant to the circumcised, but if you meditate on that and begin to think of just the cataclysmic sacrifice, uh, not cataclysmic, uh, the, the massive sacrifice that was for him, the humbling that he underwent, it, it sets a different perspective on this particular passage and even the point that Paul is making to us. So Jesus became one of the people he was seeking to reach. Most of us tend to cling to our ethnicity, our heritage, our family traditions, our background, 
And there's a place for that. I mean, it, I, I don't think the Lord has a problem with you being proud of the fact that you, know, you were born into a, a, a certain tradition or that your people come from you know, whatever the old country happens to be. But when he saves you and transforms you and makes you a citizen of the heavenly realm, makes you a joint heir with Jesus Christ and adopts you into his household, that's the primary point of identity going forward. I'm temporarily a citizen of the United States of America. I'm eternally a citizen of heaven. And here's Christ. As Philippians 2 tells us, he's not clinging to all the rights of his identity and glory in heaven, but he releases it because he's on a mission. And he's on a mission to serve people who are not like he is. Now look at the second half of verse eight because there's a second aspect of the mission that Paul unfolds for us. It's a mission to show God's truthfulness. He wants to demonstrate something. It's easy to affirm a theological fact. God is true. He's absolutely dependable. But Paul says that Jesus took this particular mission on himself to demonstrate something, and then he adds some more specific purposes here. Look at the next phrase, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. To confirm actually has the idea of fulfilling them. Now, look at what Paul does, because now he's going to pull in four promises from the Old Testament. Did you notice that, that little phrase, as it is written? Well, where is it written? Well, he doesn't tack the, the references because they weren't doing that at that particular point. I mean, he does tell us Isaiah said this. Uh, the, other, the other two sources, I know there are four verses here, but let me, let me just build this out so that you can see what he, he's doing here because he's actually taking references from all three major sections of the Old Testament. A typical Jewish person would look at the Old Testament and say, you have the law, uh, you have the writings, and you have the prophets. Well, guess what? David And then the second quotation, which may have been David's, it's just not clearly identified in Psalm 117. Those are portions taken from the writings. Moses, first five books of the Bible, writes the law. That's what we commonly refer to as the law. And then Isaiah is one of the major prophets and and regarded by many as the greatest prophet um, who who lived in Israel's history. But let's let's consider the promises a, a little further because Paul says, as it is written. And what is written? Well, the interesting thing, he's not just sampling from the three major sections of the Old Testament. He's actually finding promises that have to do not simply with the salvation of Jews, but of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, like the vast majority of us in this room. And so he, first of all, quotes David from 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, where David wrote, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10, again it is said, now he's quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, and again, Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And finally, verse 12, again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So there's a, there's a little bit of progression through that. If you're looking at the quotations there in your text, you, you'll see this. David, a Jew, writes a psalm of victory. 
And as a Jewish king, he anticipates praising God among Gentiles, but he doesn't rule Gentiles. I mean, there were some that moved in and out of Israel at that time, some that even were part of, of his mighty men, but I mean, it wasn't widespread, but he's anticipating praising God among the Gentiles. Moses calls the Gentiles to praise God with the Hebrews. Again, there would have been some that came out uh, of the Exodus, but I mean, he's not serving a really uh, broad mixture of people. It's, it's Israel. And then Isaiah refers to the root of Jesse. And I want to pause here for a moment because this, this came into clear focus yesterday morning as I was uh, just thinking and, and working on this message. Do you know what the root of Jesse is a reference to? Many of you do. Some of you would say, I, I don't even know who Jesse is. Jesse uh, is actually King David's father. So in a sense, um, you know, we could say, well, Jesse got a lot of this going, but the reality is Jesse was just one father in a long line of fathers, uh, generation by generation, through whom Messiah would ultimately come. And there are other passages, and Isaiah 11 develops some of this a little bit more, that describe, uh, that give promises, but even describe a dry root, um, a, a family, we think of a family tree, uh, which is a beautiful analogy, but if, if the root system of that tree is dead, nothing's gonna grow from it. If the root system is weak, you don't have great hopes. If the root system is dried out and looks lifeless, you'd say nothing's coming from that. And if you think about the root of Jesse at the time that Christ was born, there are several things going on there that make us say there's not a lot of hope left for Jesse's line. As a matter of fact, the promises that Paul is quoting were anywhere from about 1,500 years old, Moses. David wrote about 1,000 B.C. Isaiah's the newest promise, and his were probably 720 years old at that point. Old, old, old promises. I mean, older than the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in our country. And furthermore, Jesse's line has kind of dwindled to the point where the heir to the throne is a man named Joseph. Uh, he's a day laborer living in an out-of-the-way village, Nazareth, that's so you know, categorically despised that as another disciple will say later, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a dry root. I mean, at this point, we're looking at Jesse's house going, it's not happening. But that's what these eyes see. That's what these ears hear. That's not what God's perspective is. And though it was a moment in history where the root system had seemed to all but have died, the reality is the promises were underneath that household and the promises were as alive and well and healthy and powerful as they had ever been. Another author writes, from the pitiable remnant of the house of Jesse, there will come forth as from the remaining stump of a tree a new shoot which will establish the coming kingdom of peace and righteousness. And Paul's point, to bring it back to Romans 15, is all of that was written for a really important purpose. And here it is, so go back and look with me, not just at verse eight, so Christ comes 
a servant of the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, came 1,500 years after the promise to Moses, 1,000 years after David lived, 725 years roughly after Isaiah made his great prophecy. And he did it, verse 9, in order, or verse, the end of verse 8, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And now verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. To glorify God means to give him honor. And it's not honor that is artificial or fabricated. It's honor that he deserves. But it's not just that people would say, oh, there is a, there's a creator. That is, a, that, that is some glory to acknowledge that there's a God who created all that is, to acknowledge that. that. That gives God a kind of glory. But the specific glory that's in view here is when both Jew and Gentile come to that place of saying, you know what, I am desperately lost in my sin guilty before God, deserving of condemnation, of judgment, of wrath, whatever his justice would bring, I am I'm guilty of it and deserving of it, but I beg this God to rescue me, to save me, to deliver me. And as Jews and Gentiles humble uh, themselves, as we humble ourselves in that kind of repentance and faith in the death of Jesus Christ as the just payment for our sins, as we put our faith in the resurrected Christ as the verification that there is eternal life, life beyond the grave, and we begin to set our faith in God and then live it out toward him and toward one another, that casts glory toward God, honors him in a way that just a a mental ascent could never do. That's the kind of glory that Paul is writing of here. That's the kind of glory that was promised by the patriarchs thousands of years ago. That's the kind of glory that God, through Christ, is still, still seeking to this day. And I don't know if you have thought about it, but I'm going to encourage you to think about it right now that the fact that this little assembly, Gospel Hope Church, assembled in this piece of of, on this piece of property today is verification that what Jesus came to do long ago, He really did, and is continuing it now to this very moment. Because we, by and large, Gentiles, I know of only one exception in the room today. And if there are others of you, God bless you. I don't mean this in any kind of discriminatory way, but, but the vast majority of us are Gentiles, and when we sang our praises to God out of faith, out of joy, out of awe that we've been forgiven, all of our sins, granted the gift of eternal life, set on our way to heaven, we are the fulfillment of the promises. Not the, not the sum total, but we're just one little manifestation of it. Patriarchs couldn't imagine what an assembly like this in the 21st century would look like. Abraham, David, Moses, Isaiah, they didn't even know where Utah was. But God did. God's trustworthiness is being confirmed right now all around the world. And that's why Jesus made himself a servant, first to the circumcised, And the benefits that flowed out of that were not just powerful in Paul's day, they're powerful in our day. So now look at verse 13. Because Christ was also on a mission to give us hope. And so he breaks into this, it's a prayer, it's a benediction, and I, I mean, this this should have music set to it. Maybe it has through the centuries. 
Maybe Paul did. I don't know. But having just set his heart on just four, and, and by the way, those aren't the only four passages you could go to in the Old Testament where God promised salvation and joy and hope to the Gentiles. I mean, there are hundreds of those promises. But now Paul breaks out into this prayer of blessing, of praise, a prayer wish, as another author referred to it in some of my study that I, I did this week. Here it is. May the God of hope fill you. And that's a plural you, so it's not just for you personally. It's for us as a church. May the God of hope fill you, church at Rome. May the God of hope fill you, Gospel Hope Church, with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you all may abound in hope. Now let's unpack this for just a few moments here and notice first of all, God is both the origin and the object of our hope. It comes from him, it rests on him, apart from him we, we have no hope. So when Paul says, may the God of hope, he is thinking of God as both the origin and the object of our hope. And you know what's beautiful? Same God who gave the patriarchs the promises is the God who's given us the same promises. He doesn't change, his promises don't change, his purposes don't change. Uh, so that, that's an encouraging thought right here. Second of all, he's the God who fills us with joy and peace. He's the overflowing origin of our hope because the word fill and then the other, the word at the end of this verse, abounding, both of those words have the idea of a fullness that just overflows. And when those promises begin to take root in our hearts and they become the great, the, the great reality that sets perspective on life, uh, that sets direction for life, there really is a joy and peace that results from believing. And God's desire is that we would be people who know the great happiness of realizing same God, same promises, same Savior, same gospel. And we just live right there. And peace, that's a state of tranquility. But it, it's tranquility that actually is built on the nature of God and his promises. As much as we would all love to go back to the pump and buy $2 a gallon gas, that's not peace. And, and we know one another well enough, we'll still gripe when it's $2 a gallon. Some of you, remember, the cheapest gas I can remember is 69 cents. Now, I'm sure it was cheaper when I was a little kid, but I wasn't buying it then. Some of you say, oh, I remember when it was, and you'll, you'll go to a lower number. Peace doesn't come through cheap gas. Peace doesn't come even when inflation numbers are low. Peace doesn't come when, you know, the steps of the Supreme Court are empty and Washington is quiet. If that's what you're waiting for until you feel peace, you'll never find it. There's an echo, isn't there? Go back to chapter 14 and look at verse 17 where in the middle of that, uh, of that discussion where Paul is saying, hey, don't, don't argue with one another but receive one another, don't judge one another, don't despise one another, but love one another. He reminded us the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, or if I could contextualize this in our day, the kingdom of God is not a matter of, of cheap gas and quiet streets. What is it, Paul? Well, it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We really can't experience an aspect of the kingdom right now, but it's only 
in right relationship with God himself, specifically the Holy Spirit. He's come to dwell in us. Now, there's still a work underway, but again, going back to verse 13, here's the prayer that that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Well, the promises. That's what's been in view here for several verses. The promises that tell us Gentiles will be brought into this mighty work of salvation. Or even going back to chapter 11, I was thinking about this yesterday, Romans eleven twenty six, 26, uh, where, where Paul is saying that the Jews have been hardened for uh, a moment so that the Gentiles might be brought in, but that era is gonna come to an end, and then Paul said, these are glorious words, then all Israel will be saved. We have yet to see that, but that's a promise. Jesus has promised to return a second time, and he's not coming as a baby in a manger this go-round, but he's coming as the judge of the world and king of the universe. It's the moment that so many of us anticipate. Do you anticipate that? Are you ready for it? If you were to breathe your last breath right now and stand before God, we, we read a portion uh, just last week, Romans 14, that tells us every one of us will stand and give account to God. Are you ready for that? In Jesus, you can be. So he's the God who fills us with joy and peace in believing his word, believing his promises. And then look at the last little phrase. It's the Holy Spirit who produces an abounding hope. I'm so glad that he put it this way, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and you just, just think for a second how we try to fill this in. So that by common sense in Washington, we would abound in hope. So that by you know, economic prosperity, we would abound in hope. So that by good physical health and wellness, we would abound in hope. So that by kids who are obedient, a three-year-old who listens. I mean, there are all kinds of things where we feel like, if I could just have that, am I asking for too much? Uh, you might be. <laughs> but no, what's Paul's point? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound. That is, it just be have more hope than you, you know what to do with. Now, I'm, I'm gonna confess to you that th- this is a faith battle every day for me, and I'm sure it is for you too. But when I take time to set my heart on God's word, on his promises, as we're doing this morning, there is a shift. And I've said it before, and let me just give this little word of encouragement. If you're spending more time listening to Tucker Carlson each day than you are in this word, you're not gonna have hope. If you're spending more time posting and and watching social media than than you are just in the word or even fellowshipping with God's people where you're talking about Jesus and his promises, discussing the work that he is doing, telling your story of how you came to faith in Christ, of, of how God had mercy on you and you were just dead in your sins. If you're spending more time in, in other forms and fashions and outlets of information, you're just not gonna have hope. But the Lord himself comes to us by the power of the Spirit and also in the ministry of the Word, and he really does grow this kind of hope. Now, again, let's just step back for one more second in the larger discussion I ask at the outset, so what should our expectations be? If we're gonna live this way, what should we expect? 
Well, and I think our expectations should run naturally along the same lines that we might say Christ himself had expectations when he came to earth 2,000 years ago. Say, what do you mean? Well, think about what happened when Christ became a servant to the circumcised and Gentiles, to us. What happened, to to go back through this, this section we've been working through now for three weeks, when he took the reproaches that we were, the insults that we were hurling against God and he bore the judgment for it, what happened? Well, there was a kind of spiritual fruitfulness. In one sense, you could say, we happened, the church happened, and we should expect a similar fruitfulness. A follow-up question would be, well, Paul was living this way. He's not just preaching something that he doesn't practice himself. No, what happened when Paul obeyed Christ and became all things to all men? Well, there was more fruitfulness among the Gentiles. In the next section that's just ahead, he's actually gonna talk about fruitful ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to present-day Albania, but he's not content there. You see, the promises of God had taken such life in his soul, occupied such space in his spirit that he was saying, I'm not content with that, but I've gotta move forward. There's more fruitfulness. I go back to, I've referred to this book a couple of times, Conscience, written by Andrew uh, Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, and some of you have read it, all of you need to. Uh, but they've done some really helpful work in this very passage. And so they, they suggest a couple of things for us to set our hearts on. And I pull these four words out of this passage because that's exactly the kind of fruitfulness that Christ initiated and that Paul continued as, the, as both of these serve as examples for us of this kind of humble service And then all that stuff, the glory, the joy, the peace, the hope for both Jew and Gentiles, all that was promised to the patriarchs. And I said a moment ago, our singing in this place this morning is part of the fulfillment of some very old promises. But now listen to what Nacelli and Crowley write. What's going to happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to the people in your own church who aren't like you? who make you uncomfortable, people you want to judge in your heart because they're not strict enough, or people you want to roll your eyes at because they're not free enough. What's going to happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to people outside your church who aren't like you and who make you uncomfortable? And we're all going to come face to face with, uh, with, with people like that in the next several weeks got some important outreach that's planned and, and God willing, we will engage in. What's going to happen? The same kind of fruitfulness that came about when Jesus and Paul laid down their lives in the same way. Unimaginable fruitfulness. And fruitfulness always brings happiness to the glory and praise of God. That's what we should expect. So your love for those in this assembly, my love for those in in this assembly, it's easy to get down in the weeds and think, well, we just have differences of opinion. And that is true. There are often those personal differences of opinion, but there's something so much bigger than just ironing out personal opinions or making allowance for one another to have differences of opinion. There's the same mission that Jesus Christ was on when he came to earth. It's the same mission that he entrusted to his disciples when he said at at the end of Matthew 20, Go into all the world and make disciples. It's the same mission that Paul was on as he planted churches from Jerusalem all the way around to present-day Albania and then wasn't content and said, i got to go further west to start more churches and evangelize more lost people. It's the same mission that the people of God have been on for 2,000 years. 
And when you and I humble ourselves and keep the main thing the main thing and shove those personal opinions to the edges where so many of them belong, we should expect and anticipate fruitfulness. A healthier gospel hope, but we pray more churches, more converts, more glory to God and joy and peace for us. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, so often our opinions and ideas become paramount. They rule our hearts and we want them to rule our relationships. We want them to rule our ministry, our service, even in a place like this. We relinquish all of those personal ambitions and ideas and notions and we submit ourselves to you. We beg you to cause us to bear this kind of fruit, to be fruitful in the same way that our Lord was and is. For our fruitfulness ultimately is nothing but his fruitfulness extended into the present age. Cause our love for one another to abound. We ask God that there would be a sweet submission to the Spirit, that we would not seek our own pleasures, that we would not even seek our own rights, seek our own blessing or benefit, but that we would devote ourselves fully to Christ, fully to one another. Spirit of God, would you convict our hearts of sin, convince us once again that there is only one Savior, and we ask that you would cause this kind of hope to abound in our hearts as we see our mighty Savior, the beauty of his death and resurrection, and the glory of his dominion. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.